Chapter One of A Woman Who Went to Alaska by May Kellogg Sullivan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This recording by Karen Cummins. Chapter One Underway. My first trip from California to Alaska was made in the summer of 1899. I went alone to Dawson to my father and brother surprising them greatly when I quietly walked up to shake hands with them at their work. The amazement of my father knew no bounds, and yet I could see a lot of quiet amusement beneath all when he introduced me to his friends, which plainly said, Here is my venturesome daughter, who is really a chip off the old block, so you must not be surprised at her coming to Alaska. Father had gone to the Klondike a year before at the age of sixty-four, climbing Chilkoot Pass in the primitive way and running Miles Canyon and White Horse Rapids in a small boat which came near being swamped in the passage. My brother's entrance to the famous gold fields was made in the same dangerous manner a year before. But I had waited until trains over the White Pass and Yukon Railroad had been crossing the mountains daily for two weeks before myself attempting to get into Alaska's interior. At that time, it was only a three hours ride, including stops, over the pass to Lake Bennett, the terminus of this new railroad, the first in Alaska. A couple of rude open flat cars with springless seats along the sides were all the accommodation we had as passengers from the summit of White Pass to Lake Bennett, we having paid handsomely for the privilege of riding in this manner and thinking ourselves fortunate considering the fact that our route was, during the entire distance of about 45 miles, strewn with the bleaching bones of earlier Argonauts and their beast of burden. Naturally, my traveling companions interested me exceedingly. There were few women. Two ladies with their husbands were going to Dawson on business. About eight or ten other women belonging to the rapid class of individuals journeyed at the same time. We had all nationalities and classes. There were two women from Europe with luggage covered with foreign stickers and a spoken jargon which was neither German nor French but sounded like a clever admixture of both. Then there was the woman who went by the name of Mrs. Somebody or Other who wore a sealskin coat, diamond earrings, and silver-mounted umbrella. She had been placed in the same stateroom with me on the steamer at Seattle, and upon making her preparations to retire for the night, had offered me a glass of brandy while imbibing one herself, which I energetically, though politely, refused. At midnight, a second woman of the same caste had been ushered into my room to occupy the third and last berth, whereupon next morning I had waited upon the purser of the ship and modestly but firmly requested a change of location. In a gentlemanly way, he informed me that the only vacant stateroom was a small one next to the engine room below, but if I could endure the noise and wished to take it, I could do so. I preferred the proximity and whir of machinery, along with closer quarters, to the company of the two adventuresses, so while both women slept late next morning, I quietly and thankfully moved all my belongings below. Here I enjoyed the luxury of a room by myself for 48 hours, or until we reached Skagway, completely oblivious to the fact that never for one instant did the pounding of the great engines eight feet distant 
cease either day or night. A United States judge, an English aristocrat and lady, a Seattle lawyer, sober, thoughtful, and of middle age, who had been introduced to me by a friend upon sailing, and who kindly kept me in sight when we changed steamers or trains on the trip without specially appearing to do so, a nice old gentleman going to search for the body of his son lost in the Klondike River a few weeks before, and a good many rough miners, as well as nondescripts, made up our unique company to Dawson. Some had been over the route before when mules and horses had been the only means of transportation over the passes, and stories of the trials and dangers of former trips were heard upon deck each day, with accompaniments of oaths and slang phrases, and punctuated by splashes of tobacco juice. On the voyage to Skagway, there was little seasickness among the passengers, as we kept to the inland passage among the islands. At a short distance away, we viewed the great Treadwell gold mines on Douglas Island, and peered out through a veil of mist and rain at Juneau under the hills. Here we left a few of our best and most pleasant passengers, and watched the old Indian women drive sharp bargains in curios, beaded moccasins, bags, etc., with tourists who were impervious to the great raindrops, which are here always falling as easily from the clouds as leaves from a maple tree in October. Our landing at Skagway under the towering mountains upon beautiful Lynn Canal was more uneventful than our experience in the Customs House at that place, for we were about to cross the line into Canadian territory. Here we presented an interesting and animated scene. Probably 150 persons crowded the small station and baggage room, each one pushing his way as far as possible toward the officials, who with muttered curses hustled the tags upon each box and trunk as it was hastily unlocked and examined. Ropes and straps were flung about the floor, bags thrown with bunches of keys promiscuously, while transfer men perspiring from every pore tumbled great mountains of luggage hither and thither. Two ponderous Germans there were, who, in checked steamer caps enveloped in cigar smoke of the best brand, protested vigorously at the opening of their trunks by the officers, but their protest seemed only the more to whet the appetites of these dignitaries. The big Germans had their revenge, however. In the box of one of these men was found, with other things, a lot of Limburger cheese, the pungent odor of which drove the women screaming to the doors, and men protesting indignantly after them while those unable to reach the air prayed earnestly for a good stiff breeze off Lynn Canal to revive them. The Germans laughed till tears ran down their cheeks and cheerfully paid the duty imposed. Skagway was interesting chiefly from its historical associations as a port where so many struggling men had landed, suffered, and passed on over that trail of hardship and blood two years before. Our little narrow-gauge coaches were crowded to their utmost, men standing in aisles and on platforms, and sitting upon wood boxes and hand luggage near the doors. It was July, and the sight of fresh fruit in the hands of those lunching in the next seat almost brought tears to my eyes, for we were now going far beyond the land of fruits and all other delicacies. Pick it up, old man, pick it up and eat it. 
said one rough fellow of evident experience in Alaska to one who had dropped a cherry upon the floor, for you won't get another while you stay in this country if it's four years. But, said another, he can eat Alaska strawberries to his heart's content summer and winter, and I'll be bound when he gets home to the States, he won't thank anyone for putting a plate of beans in front of him. He'll be that sick of them. I ate beans or Alaska strawberries for nine months one season, day in and day out, and I'm a peaceable man, but at the end of that time, I'd have put a bullet through the man who offered me beans to eat. Now you can bet your life on that. Don't never insult an old-timer by putting beans before him is my advice. If you do, try to sugarcoat him by calling him strawberries. And the man thumped his old cob pipe with force enough upon the wood box to empty the ashes from its bowl and to break it into fragments had it not been well seasoned. Upon the summit of White Pass, we alighted from the train and boarded another. This time, it was the open flat cars, and the Germans came near being left. As the conductor shouted, All aboard! They both scrambled, with great puffing and blowing, owing to their avoirdupois, to the rear end of the last car, and with faces purple from exertion, plumped themselves down almost in the laps of some women who were laughing at them. We had now a dizzy descent to make to Lake Bennett. Conductor and brakemen were on the alert. With their hands upon the brakes, these men stood with nerves and muscles tense. All talking ceased. Some of us thought of home and loved ones, but none flinched. Slowly at first, then faster and faster, the train rolled over the rails until lakes, hills, and mountains barely flew past us as we descended. At last the train's speed was slackened, and we moved more leisurely along the foot of the mountains. We were in the beautiful green meadows, where pretty and fragrant wild flowers nodded in clusters among the tall grass. At Bennett, our trunks were again opened and we left the train. We were to take a small steamer down the lakes and river for Dawson. We were no longer crowded, as passengers scattered to different boats, some going east to Atlin. With little trouble I secured a lodging for one night with the stewardess of the small steamer, which would carry us as far as Miles Canyon, or the Camp Canyon City. From there we were obliged to walk five miles over the trail. It was midsummer, and the woods through which we passed were green. Wild flowers, grasses, and moss carpeted our path which lay along the eastern bank of the great gorge called Miles Canyon, only at times winding away too far for the roar of its rushing waters to reach our ears. No sound of civilization came to us, and no life was to be seen, unless a crow chanced to fly overhead in search of some morsel of food. Large forest trees? There were none. Tall, straight saplings of poplar, spruce, and pine pointed their slender fingers heavenward and seemed proudly to say, See what fortitude we have to plant ourselves in this lonely northland with our roots and sap ice-bound most of the year. Do you not admire us? And we did admire wonderingly. Then, again, nearing the banks of Miles Canyon, we forged our way on uphill and down, across wet spots, over boulders and logs, listening to the roar of the mighty torrent dashing between towering, 
many-colored walls of rock, where the volume of water 100 feet in width with a current of 15 miles an hour and a distance of five-eighths of a mile rushes insistently onward, as it has, no doubt, done for ages past. Then, at last widening, this torrent is no longer confined by precipitous cliffs, but between sparsely wooded banks, and now passes under the name of White Horse Rapids, from so strangely resembling white horses as the waters are dashed over and about the huge boulders in midstream. Here many of the earlier Argonauts found watery graves as they journeyed in small boats or rafts down the streams to the Klondike in their mad haste to reach the newly discovered gold fields. After leaving Whitehorse Rapids, we traveled for days down the river. My little stateroom next to the galley, or kitchen, of the steamer was frequently like an oven, so great was the heat from the big cooking range. The room contained nothing but two berths, made up with blankets, and upon wire springs, and the door did not boast of a lock of any description. Upon application to the purser for a chair, I received a camp stool. Luckily, I had brushes, combs, soap, and towels in my bag, for none of these things were furnished with the stateroom. In the stern of the boat, there was a small room where tin wash basins and roller towels awaited the pleasure of the women passengers, the water for their ablutions being kept in a barrel, upon which hung an old dipper. To clean one's teeth over the deck rail might seem to some an unusual undertaking, but I soon learned to do this with complacency, it being something of gain not to lose sight of passing scenery while performing the operation. At Lake Labarge, we enjoyed a magnificent panorama. Bathed in the rosy glow of a departing sunset, this beautiful body of water sparkled like diamonds on all sides of us. Around us on every hand lay the green and quiet hills. Near the water's edge, they appeared a deep green, but grew lighter in the distance. Long bars of crimson, gray, and gold streaked the western horizon, while higher up tints of purple and pink blended harmoniously with the soft blue sky. As the sun slowly settled, the colors deepened. Darker and darker they grew. The warm, soft glow had departed, and all was purple and black, including the waters beneath us. And as we passed through the northern end or outlet of the lake into Thirty Mile River, we seemed to be entering a gate. So narrow did the entrance to the river appear between the hills. At night, our steamer was frequently tied up to a woodpile along the banks of the river. No signs of civilization met our eyes, except, perhaps, a rude log hut or cabin among the trees, where at night his solitary candle twinkling in his window, and his dogs baying at the moon. Some lonely settler had established himself. The Seminole Hills country is a lonely one. Range upon range of rolling, partly wooded hills meet the eye of the traveler until it grows weary and seeks relief in sleep. Five Finger Rapids was the next point of interest on our route, and I am here reminded of a short story which is not altogether one of fiction, and which is entitled Midnight on a Yukon Steamer. End of chapter one.